0: Hello, and welcome to The Last Theater on the Left. My name is Chris, and it's been a while since I've done one of these. Welcome back to The Last Theater on the Left podcast. This is episode three, technically, but it has been a break of about two and a half years since the last episode went up. The last episode was about the movie Oculus, and it was released in September of 2014, if I'm not mistaken. So yeah, it's been quite a while and this is a reboot of sorts of the Last Theater on the Left podcast. Although I'm going to stay away from calling it a reboot because I know people for one reason or another tend to recoil when they hear the words reboot or remake and I'm not such I don't have any kind of preconceived notions. I don't have any prejudice against a reboot or remake. If a movie's good, it's good. I don't care if it's based on something or if it remakes something. But just to keep this transition into the new Last Theater on the Left smooth, as smooth as possible, I'm going to call this a sequel to the original few episodes of The Last Theater on the Left. So this is episode three. And I'm sure a lot of that doesn't mean a thing to the majority of people listening to this right now. But longtime friends of CNJ Radio might remember that I started this podcast with my CNJ Radio brethren, Joey, my best friend, and the host of Rock Strikes Ten. The show always guaranteed to give you ten songs, no more, no less. And the format of the original version of the Last the Year on the Left podcast was fairly rigid. It was Joey and myself would go to our local theater. We would go in blind. And whatever movie was showing on the screen in the far left theater, far left screens, hence the name The Last Theater on the Left, we would watch that movie, and then we would talk about it, give it a little review, and use that as a conversation starter to talk about other movies that the one that we watched reminded minded to sub, or that we wanted to go back and watch because of what we saw in the movie. So to me, it was kind of our way of trying to get people to take a look at movies that may not get enough attention from mainstream audiences. Because when you go to your theater, when whatever movies are playing in these, the screens that are on the the outskirts, the far outside of the theater, it's usually movies that are either on their way out of the theater. Or movies that never made it to the big 3D digital projection Dolby surround sound screens in the center of the theater. Those are always reserved for the blockbusters and the huge movies that everyone is talking about. But not many people are talking about those movies on the edges. So with this new podcast, this new version of the Last Theater on the Left podcast, I kind of I want to keep that the heart of the show intact. Over time, with the Last Theater on the Left, the website and the podcast. I've had a little bit of a struggle trying to find an identity for the site that I wanted to stick with. Originally, it was, like I said, we would just go in blind, and it was any movie. we talk about anything at all. But I wanted to focus, I wanted to focus the site a little bit more. So for a long time now, I've focused on just horror movies. And I love horror, and it's probably, if I had to pick one genre to watch for the rest of my life, it would probably be horror, but even though I do have a very broad definition of what I consider to be a horror movie, I still have found that it's a little bit constricting. I want to talk about more things. There are more movies out there that deserve attention that I think more people need to hear about. So going back to that image of the movies that are on the outskirts of the theater, that's kind of what I want to talk about. I want to talk about movies that are on the outskirts of the consciousness of the movie going public. And I guess what I mean by that, um, without rambling too much more, is that The Last Theater on the left will focus still on horror as well, but also just cult movies in general, Uh, low-budget movies, no-budget movies, B-movies, trash cinema, exploitation movies, uh, foreign movies, extreme cinema, things like that, to where when you hear these terms, you automatically have in your head, okay, B-movie, that's going to be... Only this amount of quality or you hear trash cinema and you're like oh that's probably has no value it's just for it's just for this certain type of people and and only these people will will like this movie and i don't think that that's fair i think when you go into a movie and you judge it by the genre that or the label that's applied to it i think you miss out on a lot of great movies that you would otherwise love and i'm the kind of person who I do approach movies from an analytical standpoint because I enjoy doing that and I love breaking down a movie and looking at it and saying, okay, I enjoy this. Like, my emotional reaction is, I enjoy this movie. And then I'll look at it and I'm like, okay, why do I enjoy it? Why does this work? Or why does this not work? Why didn't I like this movie that other people are saying that they enjoyed? But while I do enjoy that approach, that analytical approach, I know that it's not the end-all be-all of what makes a movie good. And so with this podcast, and with my website, and with my written reviews, and my and everything that I want to do with The Last Theater on the left, I want to try to merge those two ideas, the analytical and the emotional, and show that they're not mutually exclusive. They can exist at the same time, and they actually make your enjoyment of the movie better if you can look at a movie from both sides at the same time. And so, of course, I will be focusing on those movies that get routinely dismissed for not having substance simply because of the genre or type of movie that they get associated with. And of course, that will lend itself to me talking about a lot of horror movies, because I have seen, even recently, um, I know there's been a lot of, quote, I'm holding up finger quotes right now as I say this, intelligent horror movies coming out this year, like uh, Get Out and Raw and things like that. But I've seen certain individuals, I'll say, and even mainstream, fairly respected media outlets that talk about these movies from a certain perspective. It's kind of like this elitist kind of perspective of, oh, well, these movies actually say something, so they must not really be horror. I actually saw a review of Raw that was like, it, this is more than a horror movie. It is, and therefore, since it does say something about life, that it's not horror. And I just... I don't know. That's completely insane to me. And I want to try to articulate why that viewpoint is... Um, I don't agree with it at all. And so initially with this sequel to The Last Theater on the Left podcast, I wanted to talk about that idea of the myth of... I'm putting finger quotes up again. The myth of intelligent horror. Because I believe that all horror can be intelligent. And to say that movies like Raw or Get Out are intelligent insinuates that other horror movies aren't and i think that's a terrible way to look at it but i haven't actually been able to see the movie raw yet because i have been living in japan for a couple years or about a year and a half now and it's just not available to me so i think in order to properly have that discussion since the review of raw was what inspired it i need to see the movie first and besides that i did see a movie That kind of blew my mind the other day and I need to talk about it and it's a Japanese movie So it kind of fits for where I am right now And I probably will be talking about a lot of Japanese movies at least initially because that's just what I'm watching at the moment But it's a movie that for a long time wasn't available in the West and I think it was probably I want to say like around 2009 or so which is when it was first available made available on Blu-ray and DVD In the West, I think that's correct from what I've gathered from the little bit of research I did. But it's a movie that is often used as an example of uh, the crazy Japanese movie, the crazy horror that the Japanese film industry produces. And it's a movie from 1977. It is a haunted house movie to completely reduce it to its bare minimum. Uh, That's what it is. It's a haunted house movie, kind of in the style of Evil Dead 2, but pushed way, way, way further than even that was and of course i am talking about 1977's house House is a difficult movie to describe through words. It is an extremely visual movie, and you have to experience it with your eyes and your ears in order to do it justice. And it's one of those movies that I thought I had seen before, but I guess I had just read so many reviews about it, or seen it here and there, and seen enough pictures of it that I was like, oh yeah, I've seen that. I saw that a long time ago. But I watched it the other day, and I hadn't seen it, because I would have remembered if I had. And it it just it kind of blew me away. And it it's one of my favorite movies of all time at this point. I think it's it's that good. And I think a lot of people agree with me on that. It gets a lot of praise. Um, It's a Criterion DVD. It's one of the Criterion collections, which doesn't necessarily I mean, that's not an automatic qualifier for being a great movie, but it's a pretty good starting point for that conversation. But the trouble I see with it, and the reason I was talking about the misunderstandings with horror a second ago, is because I think when you look at the reviews for House, I think you see similar misunderstandings. But just to start off, I'll kind of describe the plot um, at its pretty bare minimum. Like I said, it's a haunted house movie. What it is, it's a movie about seven Japanese schoolgirls who are on summer vacation, so they decide to go to one of the girls' aunts' house out in the countryside. And when they arrive at the house, strange things start to happen. The girls start disappearing one by one. And there's something odd going on with the ant, which we soon learn about as the movie goes on. So I know I've kind of reduced it to the bare minimum, but that's basically what the movie is. It's a haunted house movie. And the plot really is actually pretty straightforward. But it's the visuals that the director employs in telling the story And the tone that he creates through all of these crazy colors and animations and different visual effect techniques that he just piles on top of each other as the movie goes along that really makes this almost overwhelming at times when you're watching it. And I do understand that that's the main draw, but when you look at the reviews for this movie almost invariably that's the only thing that people focus on to me it feels kind of a like a reduction of the movie it's almost even though people are praising it and people love it it's almost a dismissive kind of love for this movie it's it's just oh this is it's a crazy japanese movie and kind of like i was talking about with reducing movies simply because of the genre they fall in i think in the west there's this pervasive idea that japan is crazy I think, I don't think that many people will argue with the fact that in the general consciousness, I think that's something that people in the West think. And while I'm not going to argue that there aren't some crazy things that come from Japan, it's not fair to say that and leave it at that. There's a lot more to it. And I feel that when people praise House for being crazy, that's kind of what they're doing. They're dismissing all the craftsmanship that went into making this movie, and it's actually a pretty deep movie when you really start to dig into it. And I will say that I'm not going to give away any major spoilers, I'm not going to give away the ending of the movie, but just the nature of this conversation, I will give away probably some small plot points here and there, just because I kind of have to when I talk about it. But if I'm going to talk about any major spoilers, then I will I will give you a, a warning beforehand. But at the same time, House is a movie that it's almost impossible to do it justice through words alone. You have to watch it and hear it and experience it in order to get the full effect. So I wouldn't worry too much about what I say here as far as spoilers are concerned. But I know I'm I'm the kind of guy that likes to watch a movie completely blind and kind of be blindsided. And I, I was blindsided by House a little bit. Okay, so I guess I'll start kind of from the beginning. And like I said, this is a, it's a ghost story, is essentially what this movie is. Um, and when you, when you look at it, uh, I have been watching a lot of Japanese movies, and I've gotten into some of the more classic Japanese horror movies. And when you compare House to some of the classic movies, like especially there's a movie called Kuro Neko, which means Black Cat. It was released in 1968. And when you compare that to House, the two movies are extremely similar. In House, the cat is white instead of black, but it's really the same kind of movie. It's, they're both movies about a spirit that has been wronged in some way, and they in a way they lure people into their house and they dispatch them in different ways but even both of these movies were based on if you go back even further into japanese folklore and things like that the basic plot of house is very similar to uh, kaidan which is a basic uh, it's a japanese ghost story or it kind of has the connotation of being an old time ghost story like a folktale and there's a long tradition of this this type of story in japan and i think to say that house is just a crazy ghost movie dismisses all that. And I don't expect people in the West to necessarily get that. But being dismissive and saying, oh, it's crazy and wild and leave it at that kind of precludes people from looking at the story and digging into it and finding those things because that's, I love doing that. Like when I watch a movie, I'm like, oh, wow. And I want to do some research on it and and find out, okay, where did this come from? <laughs> like, why is why is this stuff happening on screen? So as strange as it might be, House actually does fit into this, like, national cultural identity of Japan and their ghost stories. It it fits right along with some of the greatest stories, I think. Um, Even as weird as it is, when you see things like a laughing watermelon or a painting of a cat that spews blood (laughs) throughout the house. I mean, that doesn't really scream classic Japanese folktale. But it really, it, it is. It really is. But at the same time, it's... It's very modern, and it embraces its its modernness. I've seen the movie uh, described as kind of a deconstruction of a ghost story, and I don't really think that that's necessarily the best description of it. I think people say that because it is, some of it is played up for comedy. It really is. It's very obvious, but I don't think it's necessarily a deconstruction of what a ghost movie, what a what a Japanese ghost story is. I think it just embraces it like. Unconditionally embraces that, and it embraces the fact that it is a movie and it is a visual medium, and it embraces this 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 medium right from the beginning of the movie. It it was directed by a man named uh, Nobuhiko Obayashi, and he's still doing he's still active to to this day. Um, but before I think this might have been his first feature length movie. Prior to House, he was generally doing uh, commercials and some kind of experimental short films. And in his short work, he did a lot. Short film work, he did a lot of unique editing techniques and, and experimented with uh, different visual effects. And that all seems to be kind of a preparation for *House* because he uses so many different visual effects in this movie. It's it can be overwhelming at times, and it takes a couple viewings to really kind of get a grasp on everything that you're seeing on screen. Uh, Just some examples like he does picture in picture and uh, different kinds of transitions, uh, chroma key, blue screen, uh, stop motion, uh, animation on the screen. It's there's so much going on visually, but it's all there for a reason. It's not I think I I see a lot of the reviews talking about um, just it's bizarre and it makes no sense and that it's all done haphazardly. And it's not It, it. It just isn't. It's all there for a reason, and yes, yeah, some of it is comedy, but a lot of it's there to... It's all there to create a specific feeling and a specific tone for the movie. And you can see that through things like uh, the choices in uh, set design were one of the first things that struck me, well, besides the obvious visual techniques, visual effects. A lot of this, the locations in this movie look very much like they're done on movie sets, Uh, The backgrounds, uh, a lot of the time, are matte paintings, and they're obviously very clearly matte paintings. But he doesn't try to hide this fact. Uh, Obayashi embraces the fact that this is a movie, and if you do it right, we accept these things as part of the movie and don't question it anymore. Because when we see something like... Uh, There's an example I used in my written review of House on The Last Theater on the Left website, which is kind of a companion piece to this, but it's a bit more structured. But there's this scene where the girls are all together, and they're they're waiting for the train to go out to the countryside, to the house. And behind them you see the train station, and it's very clearly a painting of a train station. And then we cut to a scene where we see the girls in front of a background that is, it's clouds in a blue sky, but then we see them walk, and so we've kind of been conditioned to accept, okay, well, the backgrounds in this movie are matte paintings, so they must be outside, but we pan to the left, and we see them walk by, and we see that this actually is a matte painting in the train station that they, that we just saw them out in front of, but then when the girls get to their destination, We see a bus pull up in front of a matte painting of white clouds on a blue sky. And then we pull back out and we see that this is actually a small painting at the bus stop. And behind them is the real sky. And it is yet another matte painting. And it's kind of this just... It's kind of like this mind-blowing, bizarre kind of misdirection to where we're not really sure what to expect. And we don't know what's real and what's not. Because what was real a second ago may not be real in the next scene that we see and stuff that wasn't real is real in the, in further scenes. And so it's just, it's, it, it conditions us to accept these crazy visuals that we see of these, this animation that we see, or some of the very obvious like green screen or blue screen work in the movie. We just accept it, you know? And so while some people see that as just bizarre, I see that as a very meticulously designed technique in order to get us to feel a certain way about the movie and to accept it in a certain way. There's this continuity to it so that the world that Obayashi builds, it all works together. So you never have this moment of these crazy things happening that pulls you out of the movie because we are already conditioned to accept it. And so it makes things like, uh, there's a scene Early in the movie, like, one of the first girls that disappears is a girl. Her name is Mac, and she she likes to eat. She likes to eat a lot. That's her thing. And she has this watermelon, and she wants to have this watermelon. She got it for the aunt, supposedly, but she just really wants to eat it. But anyway, things happen, and so after she disappears, one of the other girls goes to find her, and Mac had gone to get the watermelon from the well where they were cooling it, in order to, to bring it back to have it for dessert. And so this other girl, she goes to, her name is Fantasy, and she goes to find Mac, and she's like, oh, well, she didn't get the watermelon. It's still in the well, and so she pulls it up, and it's Mac's head in place of the watermelon, and Mac's head comes to life, and it flies through the air, and it bites Fantasy on the butt, and it is uh, it is quite a bizarre scene, and it is kind of funny, but then we go to a later scene And the girls go back to check to see if uh, what Fantasy has seen is actually real, because her name is Fantasy, she likes to dream, she's the dreamer of the group. So the girls don't really believe what she said in the first place, and they pull the whatever it is out of the well, and oh, it's the watermelon, and they bring it back, and they all have a nice dessert of watermelon. But what this does with that misdirection that we don't know what's real and what isn't, and if what we're seeing is actually what is in reality happening... It makes, at least for me, the way I read that scene when they're eating the watermelon, I took it to kind of mean that they're eating Max' head. And I think that was the intent all along because, as we'll see, as the movie goes on, the girls are getting eaten by the house and the spirit within the house. So it's this kind of thing. If, if Obayashi didn't do that with blurring that line between what's real and what isn't and what we see as a movie and what is seen as reality within that movie, then that wouldn't work as well, because it's not as explicit as... it's hard to have that come across any other way, I think. But since I've been talking about the girls and talking about their unique names, I do want to talk about that for a minute, because this is one thing that I think a lot of their views kind of gloss over a bit. They look at these girls' names and they're like, oh, well, they're very on-the-nose and very stereotypical. And yeah, it's true. They are very on the nose but when people are reviewing in this movie i haven't seen any that actually go into trying to find what the japanese names of these girls are because it actually does show another level of of depth in the movie so i've already mentioned a few of the girls names um gorgeous is the the one that the movie kind of focuses on a bit even though the focus kind of drifts to all the girls as the movie goes along, but she's the one that really is the, she's there at the beginning and the end, and it's really her story out of anybody's. The Japanese word for her name is Oshare, which means fashionable, and I think it's actually a little bit more apropos, because when we see how the movie progresses, the the girls all embody these qualities that are very explicitly described in their name, and so yes, it's very stereotypical. To me, it feels kind of like uh, like, Uh, The Cabin in the Woods, where you have these archetypes, and in these movies, people fit into these archetypes. And that's, I think, exactly what Obayashi was trying to do with these girls' names. To a certain extent, they are reduced to these stereotypes, which are very clearly communicated to the viewers by their names. And so, I think Gorgeous works, in a way but fashionable actually works better because it's not... Gorgeous is something that she is. It's kind of inherent in what she is, but fashionable is something that she actually does. It's a quality of her personality that is something that she acts on, and we see this come into play later in the movie because she gets, in a way, seduced by a mirror and putting on makeup and dressing up, and that leads to her downfall, and I think that's a very very important distinction to make in this movie, because without looking into that and without finding out that's actually what her name means, you kind of miss that extra layer of meaning. And this same level of depth really holds true for all of the girls. I've already mentioned that uh, one of Gorgeous's friends, her name is Mac, and that is actually short, as they explain in the movie, it's short for stomach. Maku is what they call her. So obviously that's a direct reference to the fact that she likes to eat, and she's called kind of fat in a way in the movie and she's not at all but she she's always she's constantly eating she's always thinking about food and that's that's who she is that's what that character is reduced to and that's also her downfall like I just mentioned the watermelon she was she from the moment she saw as they arrived to her the aunt's house she saw this watermelon vendor and she was like oh I want to eat that watermelon and she actually went back to go get it and it's very clear and that was what led to her downfall as well as the fact that she liked to eat but in addition to that on the japanese wikipedia of the movie house not only is mac a shortened version of stomach it's an abbreviation for mcdonald's which in the japanese pronunciation mcdonald's is makudonarudo and so it's like a mouthful but that actually is pretty significant when we talk about when i talk about these next two girls Fantasy is another one of the girls that I've already mentioned. She's the one that likes to take photographs. She kind of makes up stories in her head. We see at one point she fantasizes about the girl's teacher, uh, Mr. Togo, or Togo Sensei. And so she's the one that kind of sees things happening But throughout the movie, but nobody believes her because she always fantasizes. That's what she does. That's who that character is. The English translation is, of course, fantasy. But on the Japanese language on the audio track, you can hear they're calling her Fanta. That's that's actually what they're calling her, and again, looking at looking up some of the information about it, that is actually a direct reference to the soft drink Fanta. So you've already got two girls associated with food, and then there's another girl that I haven't mentioned yet. Her name is Melody, and you can probably guess she likes to play music. She is the musician she's seeing playing the guitar the first time we see her, And she continually plays this piano in the aunt's house throughout the movie. But looking a little bit into that, Melody was actually the name for a chocolate bar in Japan at the time. And so that's what that is. In addition to being a musician, her name is also a reference to the chocolate bar. So you have three of these girls who are associated with food. And this is a movie about a house that eats people. So (laughs) it's not a stretch to assume that that was clearly intentional. And not all of the girls are associated directly with food. Like, uh, Gorgeous isn't, Oshare, Fashionable isn't associated with food, but there are enough of them that are. There's another girl named Sweet. Sweet is the girl that is, she's a very demure personality. She's the one that likes to cook and clean and take care of the house. And she's always nice to everyone. And that's what she does. And that's what she is. But she's also sweet. So, of course, you would think that the house would enjoy to consume her as well. And then there are two other girls, uh, two girls that actually make it pretty far in the movie. One of them is Kung Fu, and the Japanese word is very similar. It is Kung Fu. And she is the girl that is very active, and she can take care of herself. And she does sort of like karate kicks and things like that. So she's the one that always takes action, and she takes the lead. And she's always the one that goes off in search of the girls as they start to disappear. And if you watch the movie... Her downfall in the movie is when she actually goes to seek help for the first time. That's when things start to decline for her. And then the last of the seven girls is, um, in the English translation, it's her name is Prof, short for Professor, presumably, because she's the smart one. She's the one with glasses, which (laughs) obviously signifies that she's the smart one. Uh, she's the analytical one. In the Japanese version, in the audio, you can hear her name is Gadi. and so that's nothing like Prof or Professor. But it, I believe it's short for gadibin, which it means to study, to like cram for, like a, for finals or for a test or whatever. And so, yeah, it kind of works with professor. But I think the point that I'm trying to make with this is that all of these names, when you just look at it from the English translation, some of them do lose their meaning. And you lose that continuity that all of these names are specifically designed to mean something and they all play into the downfalls of each of these girls that gets consumed by this house. And I do I don't think it's a coincidence that some of the girls are associated with things like junk food as well, the names are, because it's in a way it's kind of when you look at these movies, haunted house movies, just horror movies in general, the people, the victims, typically, especially at the time, the women who are tend to be the victims in these movies, are kind of disposable in a way like they do get consumed and used like junk food it's just something that as viewers of these movies we just consume them and don't really think about it and maybe it's not the best for us you know I don't know maybe I'm thinking a little bit too hard about that but I do think there's something to that of the the uh, disposable nature and the junk food nature of the representation of these characters, because this movie doesn't make these full fleshed out characters except for maybe Gorgeous and The Ant. Everyone else are very one-dimensional and they are very stereotypical and archetypical, and I do believe that's done for a very specific reason. Uh, in addition to the reasons I've said before, it's also to, it's another way of reminding us that we're watching a movie. This is something that Obayashi continually reminds us throughout the picture, but he does so in a way that relates it to us as people. Like, I know for me, I when I think about, um, say, the past, or if I think about the 1980s, I think about a certain quality, and I remember it in the pictures I've seen and the movies I've seen. So I remember... I think about the 80s differently than I think about say like the 50s or the 40s like I, when I think of the 40s I tend to think, you know, more in black and white. I don't really think about that in color because that's only that's what I've been exposed to my entire life is in the 40s it's it's black and white, you know. Or you know 70s movies have this specific visual look to them and that's when I think about the 70s that's what I think of. And to me Obayashi actually portrays that in-house in different ways. Uh, at one point late in the movie when things are going really bad, Fantasy has a, a dream about her the teacher, Mr. Togo, who has, she has a crush on. And when she thinks about it in her head, she's seeing this as the end of some kind of movie where Togo comes in on, a, on horseback and sweeps her away, and it, it's even complete with end title credits and everything in her own head. So very clearly, Obayashi is is reminding us that this is how we think about things in modern society. We think about things in terms of movies or the the media that we're exposed to. That's how we see the world. But even more so, in an even clearer example than that, earlier in the movie, when all the girls are on a train headed to the countryside to head to the house, uh, Gorgeous tells her friends about her aunt. And she kind of tells about the story of her aunt and her relationship to her mother and why her aunt is living alone out in this country house. And so as she's telling the story to her friends, we do a transition to a very clearly a silent film style flashback. You can even hear the projector rolling a little bit, and you can see the actual film frames on the screen. Like, you can see the the sides of the film frames. It's very clearly supposed to represent uh, silent film. It even has the intertitles, and we don't hear the people in the flashback speaking. Uh, Gorgeous narrates the flashback a little bit. But the interesting thing to note is that not only is she relaying this in the form of a flashback from the time period in the style of the film from the time period that this would have occurred in, the girls that she's telling the story to are actually watching that film with us. As we see this flashback and as Gorgeous talks a little bit over it, the girls talk about what they're seeing on screen and not what Gorgeous is telling them. Uh, At one point there's like food and drink uh, on screen and Mac makes some comment about, oh that looks so good, and when the intertitles come up we see that as we're reading them, The girls are reading them along with us, and we know this because one of them actually comments on one of the other girls misreading one of the kanji on screen. It doesn't feel out of place in the movie that these girls are watching this movie within a movie that can't possibly exist, and to me that's just another, yet another way that Obayashi kind of blurs reality and fiction and movie and real life, so that as we're watching, as viewers, We're kind of in the same place that these girls are in a way. And the girls never break the fourth wall as far as them realizing that they're in a movie. Although the aunt at one point does look directly at the screen. But but by doing this, by putting this idea in our head that we see things as movies and that these girls are seeing things as movies, it makes... The movie that we're watching, as ridiculous and as crazy as it is, it makes it more real to us and we accept it. And it makes it, even though I wouldn't say that the movie is necessarily frightening in any way, there are moments that are creepy, but they're only creepy if you put yourself in a certain state of mind. And I think that's what Obayashi was trying to do, is to put you in that state of mind so that when the creepy stuff does start happening later on in the movie, you're conditioned to feel it in the correct manner. And so I've talked at this point, I've I've rambled, I guess, a bit about why I don't think that it's fair to dismiss this movie as just being visually crazy. And that's the best and or the only thing to enjoy about this movie. And I've talked a lot about conditioning in order to be able to accept what we see. But beyond that, beyond the visuals, there's more to the movie. There's actually some very uh, meaningful themes within the movie. And one of them does stem from that silent film flashback that I talked about. Uh, At the end of the flashback, there's a shot where the aunt, she was going to be married at one point, but her fiancé went off to war in World War II and he never came back. And at the end of that flashback, there's a shot of Gorgeous's mother who is going to get married and she's dressed in her her wedding attire, her traditional uh, Japanese wedding attire, and the ant is standing behind her. She's dressed in black and she's carrying the white cat that we see throughout the movie. When the photographer takes the picture, when the flash goes off, it explodes into images of an atomic bomb. And that's not a very subtle technique. I mean, it's a very, I wouldn't say heavy-handed approach. Because <laughs> you could argue that everything in this movie is heavy-handed. But not necessarily in a bad way. But it's a very obvious reference to the bombs that were dropped in World War II on Japan and the effect that they had on the Japanese people. And really, when you look at Japanese film post-World War II, I mean, it's hard not to see the effect that it had in pretty much, I haven't seen any movie produced in the time after the war that wasn't in some way affected by that. And that, of course, plays into some of the themes of House as well. And I think a lot of that is missed if you don't um, really pay attention to it if you just, if you just look at it for the visuals and you don't watch it for what it means. Because I have seen a few, uh, a few analyses of the movie that talk about, um, how, what the movie is supposed to mean. And I think it it definitely is open to interpretation. Every movie is. But I do see it as a kind of a tale of that generation break. The aunt's generation and her parents' generation were clearly affected by the war. They're one of the last generations, I guess, at the time. Not really, but in the context of this movie, they're the generation, the last full generation, that was really affected so greatly by the war directly, because they lived through it. Gorgeous and her friends were all born after the war, so they didn't have to experience that. And so all of Gorgeous and her friends, they occasionally they'll talk about uh, looking forward to marriage, and of course fantasy fantasizes about Mr. Togo, and other girls talk about their future they all talk about their future husbands and when they the girls go to the house we see them kind of taking on these traditional roles of when they're helping the aunt out they're cooking and they're cleaning and they enjoy it and they they like it and that's what they do the effects of, of the war don't really seem to they're not affected by it it's a, i wouldn't necessarily call it Ignorant bliss, but that's a little bit of what it is. But the aunt, she lived through it, and it's that conflict between those generations and the specter of the war that it really is affecting Gorgeous and her friends, even though they may not realize it. And I think that's part of what the story is about. It's not like every aspect of the movie plays directly into that, but it's definitely there. And to dismiss that is to miss. A huge chunk of the movie and the meaning of the movie, but in addition to that it's also about marriage um, and the roles that women play in Japanese society, I think. You just can't avoid that even though if Obayashi didn't necessarily put those things in the movie as, I want to make a point about marriage, you can still extrapolate that from what the movie is about. Because as I stated, the, the aunt, she was denied that marriage that that her sister had and that other women had and it was because of the war, but she was denied that, denied that happiness that that she expected from the potential marriage to her fiance. So that's what kind of drives her to do what she does in the movie, but also the whole reason that Gorgeous and her friends go to the aunt's house is because Gorgeous's father, whose Gorgeous's mother had died eight years prior to the start of the movie, and we see in some flashbacks, in some photographs that represent flashbacks again, using tangible media as a way to express a flashback, we see that Gorgeous has kind of taken that role, not necessarily as wife, but as that, that figure that kind of supports her father in that, a similar manner. She's cooking, she's cleaning, she's helping mend his clothes. Um, but the beginning of the movie, we see that Gorgeous and her father were supposed to go on this trip together, just the two of them for their summer vacation, but her father has come back and he has a new fiancé and he introduces her to Gorgeous as this is your future mother. And Gorgeous doesn't like that. And she says, okay, well, I'm not going to go with you. I'm not going to go with the two of you to this vacation we had planned that I was looking forward to. I'm going to do something else. And so that was the impetus for Gorgeous to contact her aunt, whom she hadn't seen since her mother's funeral. So this idea of a marriage that was torn apart by, by death... For the father and also for the aunt, it, it's all tied together and it all plays a role in the downfall of these, these young and innocent girls. And it's interesting to note that this movie really does focus on the women. There are men in the movie, but they all kind of play ancillary roles and they're never there. They're never the ones to uh, come in, they don't come in and save the day. The women are always waiting for these men. The aunt was waiting for her fiance. The girls were waiting for Mister Togo to show up. He was supposed to go with them to the house, but he never shows up because of some wackiness that ensues with a bucket and things that I'll I'll leave that to for you to watch it because it's it's pretty silly. But it kind of shows as these things are happening to the girls, we see that Togo is. Sort of trying to make his way to the house, but he doesn't really seem that concerned with getting there. And even Gorgeous's father isn't the one to go to try to make amends to his daughter for for hurting her feelings in the beginning of the movie. It's his fiancée, Gorgeous's potential new mother, that goes out to... She travels out to the house, too, to try and help things out. So the men are always kind of in this role of, of not being that supportive figure. And that's so... There's that as well. It's just there are a lot of themes that I think, like I said, I think you miss if you don't really look at the movie and how it's all tied together. Additionally, I just thought that, I just thought of this, in the very beginning of the movie, uh, two of the girls, Gorgeous and Fantasy, are talking to one of their female teachers before they go on summer vacation. And they congratulate this female teacher on her future marriage. She's going to get married over the summer break and as the as the two girls walk off we linger on the teacher and she kind of looks wistfully at the girls cuz she explains to them when they congratulate her she kind of dismisses it and she's like oh well it's an arranged marriage signifying that you know it's not for love like i'm not getting married because of love it's just it's something that i'm obligated to do and as the girls go off she kind of watches them kind of wistfully and you can kind of see in her eyes that she's she says something about like uh, like longing for summer vacation, like how nice it is. And so obviously she's looking at them and seeing how young and how such full of potential they are as marriage almost seems like a death sentence for her. Like she's going into this arranged marriage and it's going to be like the end. She wants more than that. And she sees that in the girls as they go off. But as we see as the movie goes along, that's, things don't turn out well for them either. And so with that, I think that there are a lot of different, themes in this movie that are actually really important and really relatable that people people miss out on because of the the craziness and the blood and the dancing furniture and things like that and I don't mean to get too analytical about it but I think there's a lot to analyze in this movie and it's it's really fascinating it's it's kind of like a Rorschach test of a movie like if you look at like freeze frame one of the like at any point any given point in the movie and kind of see what you think it means just from that still image. And I think a lot of people will find a lot of different things in it. And I think that's great. That's I love movies like that. This whole podcast so far is really it's not meant to for me to be talking to you and saying this is how you should see this movie. It's more of a conversation starter. I'm saying that this is how I see this movie. And you will probably see it a little bit different light. And if you see it just as a crazy wild movie with fun visuals that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I mean, that's okay, but I think you're missing a lot when you think of it that way. But I like movies that you can draw different conclusions from. Um, going back to, like, Joey and I, my best friend Joey and I, we always, we love to talk about movies together, but so a lot of times we have similar opinions and things, but a lot of times we don't, and we see things in different ways. Uh, if you go back to our Oculus a podcast that you can find on the last theater on the left. We actually have a different view of what happened in that movie, like very different, and we can both support our claims with stuff that happens in the movie. But hopefully, with this uh, kind of rambling tirade of house, um, I don't know if I made much sense. But that's kind of what the movie does to you. It, it's it's like I said. It's when I started this. It's difficult to describe it in words. You just have to watch it. So. Go and watch House if you haven't done so already and maybe come back and give this a listen again and see if you agree with what I say about a lot of the meaning and the depth of craftsmanship because I do think this is a very meticulously crafted movie and to say that it's haphazard is I don't like to say that people are wrong for their what they say about a movie a lot of times. But if you say that this is a haphazardly put together movie, then you're absolutely wrong. It is not. It is a great movie. It is a brilliant movie, in my opinion. And usually when I talk about movies, when I do a review or something, this wasn't really a review, this is more of a pseudo-analysis of it um, to try to convince you that to try to convince you to watch it and to watch it from maybe a different perspective than you thought about before. But I always like to kind of end with other movies that maybe you should watch and I think that helps to get a sense of what the movie that I just talked about is because for me I get I used I've worked in places before where I would get asked or even just from friends I would get asked okay well what should I watch and that's an impossible question to ask when you don't know what that person likes so I usually start from the point of view of asking them, okay, well, what's one of, what's a movie that you like that you wanna see something similar to? And then I'll list maybe a few movies that I think would fit into their preferences based on that movie choice initially. And so I like to recommend a few movies. So for House, I'm going to recommend a few movies that maybe you've probably already seen before, maybe some that you haven't, but that I think help to illustrate in a certain way what this movie what house itself is and how it has influenced either directly or indirectly other movies movies in the future and i've already mentioned one of them before if you haven't seen evil dead 2 you definitely must watch evil dead 2 and it's really the closest movie that i can think of to the feeling the tone Uh, of House. It's crazy, but it's also horror at the same time. I've seen a review of House that said that it's not a horror movie, that it's a comedy, and I don't agree with that really at all. I can see where the person was coming from, but it is a horror movie, and there are creepy parts to it, and like I've said, the director, Obayashi, conditions you to accept the horror and the comedy at the same time, which actually, to me, when it works well like that, comedy and horror, it almost heightens the effect of both. Like, Shaun of the Dead is one of my favorite movies, and I think that's one of the prototypes of comedy and horror working well at the same time. But Evil Dead 2 also is one of those movies. And Evil Dead 2 isn't as visually wild as House is, but the tone of it and some of the effects in it. Like, there's the scene in Evil Dead 2 where Ash is just in the middle of the cabin, and everything all the inanimate objects around the house start dancing and laughing around him. And that's really similar to a lot of what house is too. It's that same kind of aesthetic and that same feel. So that's one recommendation Evil Dead 2. Another one which I think I mentioned a few minutes ago is Cabin in the Woods. And I recommend this one because when I was talking about how the girls all kind of they're archetypes, and they are described by their name, and that's exactly what they are. That's one of the things that The Cabin in the Woods pointed out, is that the in horror movies, we see these archetypes continually, repeatedly in these movies, and they fill these specific roles for a specific reason. It's not done to be lazy, it's done because it works. It's done because it says something more than, than just teens getting killed. It actually relates to certain social anxieties. But on top of that, I, I did mention how the these quirks that define these girls in-house leads to their downfall. And that's kind of the same thing that happens in Cabin in the Woods. At the beginning of the movie, like each of the kids uh, in the Cabin in the Woods they, they, they gravitate towards something, and it draws them in almost hypnotically. And the same thing happens in house. The girls, whatever they're focused on, it was Mac with her watermelon, Melody with a uh, piano, uh, Gorgeous with the mirror. All these girls, sweet with um, cleaning. <laughs> I, I don't want to say anything more about that, because that's pretty awesome itself. But all of the girls gravitate towards these specific things, and that's kind of what draws them apart, and that what draws them further into the house and leads to their downfall. And I think Cabin in the Woods also kind of gets named as a deconstruction of the horror movie genre. And I just don't like that term deconstruction because I think it says something, it it kind of sets the movie outside of what it is, but I don't really see it as that. I see it as more as an embrace of everything that the genre is. And so maybe the difference isn't that much. I just, I don't know. The, the word deconstruction kind of, it kind of feels a little bit um, elitist to me and almost too analytical, even though, which is probably kind of. Ironic <laughs> if you're listening to this well, from what everything I've just said, but yeah, that's just my personal opinion on that uh, Another movie that I think uh, fits well that maybe you haven't seen is a Japanese movie called sweet home and it is a it, It's gotten a little bit more popular because it was released in the 80s. Um, I want to say 1989 I think is when it was released and this is a movie that was released at the same time as a video game for the Japanese Nintendo, uh, the Famicom. And it is a, another haunted house movie. And it's a little bit more of a traditional haunted house movie. But it does have some very uh, unique elements to it. Some uh, I wouldn't say that it's nearly as crazy as House. It isn't but it has a similar feel to it. It's, like I said, a Japanese movie that was released at the same time as the video game of the same name, and I'm unclear on if one was based on the other. I kind of don't think so, because i played the game, and I've seen the movie, and they're not exactly the same. They're quite a bit different in lots of ways, but Sweet Home the game was one of the inspirations for the Resident Evil series of games that has spawned movies and books and more and more games. And I think when people hear that, they make that comparison a little bit too literal in saying that Resident Evil was based on Sweet Home, which I don't think is true at all. It was just, it's kind of a spiritual inspiration to it. And I think, similarly, I think House is probably a spiritual inspiration for Sweet Home. There was the movie Sweet Home, which was released, like I said, 1989. Check that out if you can find it. I'm sure you can find it online. Because um, I've seen it online. And I think the last movie that I'm going to recommend, This is a, I usually only recommend one or two movies, but I'm going to recommend another one because I think it's important. And to encompass everything that House is, you really need a lot of movies. You have to have a lot of material to kind of describe it. And even the movies that I'm talking about, even combined together, they don't really describe what House is. It's, it's just outside of it. But the it's another movie that I mentioned earlier. It's Kuro Neko. From 1968, Kuroneko, or The Black Cat, a Japanese film about a a mother and daughter who are murdered. And they come back as vengeful spirits who lure people into their house, lure men into their house, and dispatch them in various ways. And it's not, it's very straightforward, like I said, it's more of a traditional Japanese ghost story, and it's played very straight. It's not done for comedy at all, but it's a great great movie and it's one I, I was recently exposed to. Um that one and there's another movie. I guess I'll I'll go ahead and mention a fifth one. Ugetsu is another movie. It was released about ten years before Kuroneko, I wanna say. Uh 19, 1953 is when Ugetsu was released and it's a classic, a very absolute classic Japanese ghost story. Similar plot to Kuroneko and to House in that it's about a person who was wronged who comes back as a spirit and lures people and does things to them. But I think with that I've talked I've talked enough. Hopefully I wasn't too rambling and hopefully I made sense and maybe if if at all if any of the points that I tried to make came across as getting you more interested in watching House or if this is the first time you heard of the movie and it's made you want to go check it out Or if you've already seen the movie a hundred times, and if I got you to think about it maybe in a different way at all, then I think I've done my job. And if you disagree with absolutely everything I said, I think that's great too, because this is really meant to be a conversation starter. I am not claiming to have the only way to look at any movie. I'm just trying to express my passionate response to movies like House and these other movies that I want to talk about that don't get enough passionate responses, I think. Uh, I just want to share movies with the world and get people to to think about it in maybe a little bit different way. And so with that, I think I'm going to wrap up this episode three of The Last Theater on the Left podcast. If you're interested in reading uh, a review, I talked about a lot of the points already in this podcast, but I do have a written review of House up on the website. You can find that on cnjradio.com. And if you want to get in touch with me, uh, check out my Facebook. It is linked from the com page, or you can email me through Twitter. My personal Twitter account is at spot underscore 437. There's also a Twitter account for The Last Theater on the Left, and there's a Facebook for it, and you can reach me in any of those locations. But yeah, that's it. Thanks for listening. I have been Chris. This is The Last Theater on the Left, and I'll see you next time.